This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. second Texas trip, we end up in this situation where we really only have a rough idea of what happened from the FBI timeline, which, you know, the ATM withdrawals are backwards. And then we could look at the different authors that have talked about these cases, this case over the years, and you can get a couple of different interpretations of what the FBI is saying. So Megan and I took a hard look at that. And I, and I have a victim down there that, you know, I've been in touch with some of the family uh, you know, I really just wanted to find out if the FBI ever been in touch with them because it was a it was a latecomer to Namus. But his case was very interesting to me because it took place between the two ATM stops. Meg looks at it and her gut says, like, no, it's probably not a, a, a case for keys. But I look at it and something about it just I can't shake what's happening there in my head. I don't know how to explain it, but my gut says, like, look deeper at it. So I've been trying to figure out a way that, you know, we could look deeper at it. It's very complicated to do that. It's a tight timeline and, like, you know, all the things that make me say uh, no, I can turn into a yes. So it's not even that I'm wiggling. It's just that I can't quite wrap my head around how it would have gone down. And if there was no suggestion I'll play in this case, I probably would just leave it alone. But... There is a suggestion by law enforcement of foul play, and I'm just curious if they ever told the FBI about this case. It's just it, this this part of it that's it, it's the location, really, more than anything else. It's the timing and the location make it really hard for me to both grasp how it would be done and rule it out. So then the question becomes like, what do I mention it to the family members I'm talking to? And that's a, that's a really difficult. Thing, it's a really difficult thing to bring up. Have you considered he might have been killed by Israel Keys? That's a really strange conversation starter. You said something that was interesting the other day. I want to I want to mention it here. It was that all of this stuff that was going on the first trip to Texas when when Keys goes down there. One of the things you have to keep in, in the back of your mind as as you're sort of vetting this and, and figuring out like what he would have done and would not have done as he goes on this cruise and then he comes back and he misses his flight is, I mean, we know he set a fire and committed a bank robbery. That's correct. This, this guy that's doing this stuff and hiding his guns and all of these things that he is doing has a dead woman in his shed back in Alaska that is wrapped in a sleeping bag and stuck in a cabinet that he has to go back and do it. And with. so as you think about that, what, for, for one thing, had you thought about that? I be, I've become desensitized to this. I think the first time I started like working through Israel Keys stuff realistically 
not just glancing at it. It was probably around 2015, 2016. So you're talking at this point, I've gone over and over and over things about keys so many times that there are certain things that like, when I say I'm desensitized to them, it's very hard for me to use my, uh, whatever it is that I, that I, that I use on this to see fresh eyes on certain aspects of the Israel keys case. That is one of the things that I've been glossing over in my head. And I don't know why, but when you said it, it rung a bell with me because I was like, that is the craziest thing to think about that. There is a body that he is dealing with while he is, has gone on a cruise, ditching his family, burning a house, missing his flight, robbing a bank, paying his mom back. All of these things are going on. And I think that's what sets off. So, so this is the, the first trip to Texas technically, or technically the second trip, if you want to count, he flies down, goes on the cruise, comes back to Texas, and he's seeing his family. He has a body at home. I think that's that, that cannot of. be overemphasized. And yeah, and I, 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 <laughs> I, well, I, I realized something else, but go ahead. I realized something else about that, but go ahead. Well, I wanted, I wanted to say that. Um, it was something that you said that made me think that. It was something that you said about uh, Mark Reinberger and about when I, I said something like, okay, so what about, um, why wouldn't Keyes have just taken his guns elsewhere if he'd seen him bearing guns instead of chasing Mark Reinberger? And you were like, well, because Samantha Koenig's in a shed at his house in Alaska. And I'm like, you know what? You're absolutely right. So why the hell is he doing any of this stuff? Right. And we, and you know, some of it's not speculative. He's documented, you know, robbing the bank. He's documented uh, confessing to the fire. So, you know, people got hung up on, on James Tidwell, who could only have really happened in this time frame because by the time Keith comes back down, people know that, that Jimmy Tidwell is missing. So it couldn't be on the second trip, and he's not, you know, that's not really the the best way for, for this to go down, for Jimmy Tibble to be on the second trip. It makes no sense. So it has to be on the first trip, and it's really just because of the hair under the hard hat. That's really the only thing that makes people think Jimmy Tidwell, is Jimmy Tidwell had a hairstyle that's sort of similar to the hair that was under the hot, hard hat when Keyes was robbing the bank there on the first trip to get pay his mom back. Or <laughs> It's the most bizarre thing. So little things like that, like come up for me. And when you said it, you know, I, I just wanted to make sure that I'm saying it so that people listening to this understand that this person that we were talking about in the last episode where, you know, he's on this trip uh, down to Texas. Um, I, actually, by the time this airs, th- there's a Wyoming thing that's in there because it, it's a, a placeholder in time for me. But so he has one trip to Texas We've covered that, and and I just want to make sure that people understand that like he has a body at home. He's not traveling with the person that he lives with at this point, and he has a body at home in Alaska, in a shed, in his driveway. And it's not his his house up there is not in a remote location. It's in a like a little suburban neighborhood. Right, but it's so cold. He's confident that she's frozen, and uh, she's wrapped up. And the houses, uh, the storage building is double locked. Right. So he was very, very confident in what he did. So 
he is, he's extremely confident about that. And, but it's also at the same time that it's confident, it's a sign of like taking too many risks. This is part of what I consider to be decompensating. So it's one thing to leave people in the basement of a farmhouse that you've killed. Well, there's no way he could be tied back to that. Right. But it's a completely different thing to have a body in a shed and that shed it's in your driveway. Right. That part makes me think that he was unraveling at the same time that he was being confident and getting away with some of this. I have two questions for you as we start this episode. One is he supposedly realized his rental car had been caught on a surveillance camera camera and then swapped his rental car and ended up getting the same rental car. Do you remember this whole story? I do. And I just want to point out this is on the third trip. Yeah. So this is a trip where Samantha Koenig's body has been disposed of and he is having to rush back down because he has two sisters getting married. That's correct. I have never found documentation of that happening. And the reason it's important to me, and I'm, I'm still looking for it. I've, I know it's in, in here I somewhere. Can, it's mentioned in, in American Predator. I can Go tell ahead. you, um, he went in, complained to get a new car, and they gave him a new car that was exactly the same as the old car. I was just trying to find out where in this, like, I was trying to find a date and time for that roughly. Do you know where that is? Uh, well, I can look for it and find it, but no, I don't know right off the top of my head. I probably have it in I my think- notes. Okay, I think that's going to be important at some point. I don't think it's necessarily important for the story. That I don't know that it makes a difference because, like, both vehicles were white Ford Focuses of the same year. I agree that it may not make a difference, but it could place him in time and space for us because we're getting to the very last of his. This is right before his arrest that we're about to talk about. Right. Um. Well, if that's an important thing, I can go find it. I just didn't know you needed that. No, I didn't know it till I started talking just now. What do you okay, think? So what the, difference do you think that's going to make? I mean, I, I'm just wondering. Like, well, you're very particular about how you like your dates and times. I was just curious if we could figure out which date of because this is a shorter trip. And, you know, it doesn't have a cruise in the middle of it. It's just got a couple of weddings. Uh, some of the things that we've been hunting down related to this are like the ATM visits. Like We've been trying to get the exact times and the exact locations. So I was curious if that might be something that that would help us to understand like what was going on on this trip. Because I have a, a very particular opinion about the, the case we're going to talk about. And I've been trying to back it up as best I could. And I feel like if I could find that, I don't, I didn't find it in American Predator. And I didn't find a good note on it. Um, I, I was almost wondering if it was an anecdote. Like it's just sort of said in passing and there's no real date or time attributed to it because I haven't been able to find that. And Meg went back and found a passage in uh, Hunter's book, The Devil in the, uh, Devil in the Darkness. And that passage, she found this after we had already recorded this episode because we, we recorded this a while back. So... What she found was on page 78, it says, on March 9th, around 11.20 p.m., Samantha's killer withdrew $480 from an ATM at the Houston Community Bank at Humble City, Texas, just across from the airport. While in town, he stops at the local Avis Carbonal office and requested a new vehicle. With a different car, he would have blown him back into a net anonymity and disappeared and law enforcement's only solid lead would have turned into a wild 
uh, goose chase. But state or the hand of God intervened and handed investigators an incredible break. The man who stayed a step ahead of the police received another car, but due to limited inventory of hand, the Avis agent gave him the same make and model car he'd had before. Not only that, same color, too. When he pulled out of the rental car parking lot with a new vehicle, he was still driving a white Ford Focus. Meanwhile, the FBI issued an alert to Texas law enforcement, advising them to be on the lookout for a white 2012 Ford Focus. After reviewing the alert, Texas Ranger Steve Rayburn passed it along to his fellow Rangers. And then two days later, Samantha's killer headed towards Grand Prairie, Texas, to attend his sister's wedding. Just before 11.30 p.m. on March the 11th, he made another $480 withdrawal, this time from the People's State Bank on Highway 59 in Shepherd, Texas, about halfway between Houston and Lufkin. So that clears up, for me, a rough idea of how that went down. And what's a little weird about it is when you start looking at Humble City, Texas, or Humble, Texas, and looking at, like, what are they talking about related to the airport? Here's what I'm getting at with some of these, like, semantic things. He says he never did anything with kids, and that's how he knew he was losing control. And I'm going way back to when you and I first started recording for this, and you mentioned it again later. You said Samantha Koenig is a kid. I started to think, what if he thought that too? Yeah. And that's what he's referencing is the fact that Samantha Koenig is a kid. And that's how he knew he was losing control because he, he's doing all these crazy things surrounding her, you know, her abduction. It's entirely possible. Because that one, I, I think, is summed up by Samantha Koenig basically being a kid. And no matter what we... Well, and what we know is before Samantha Koenig, a, a what, from February of 12... Going back to June of 11, so however many months that is, seven months. Um, so we have the couriers who are a, a middle-aged couple, right? Right. Okay, and then I feel like it would be odd for a 33-year-old man not to consider Samantha Koenig a kid. Keeping in mind, he had planned out what he was going to do. He didn't have a specific person in mind he was going to take whomever was working the coffee stand. Right. It could have been any of the young girls in there. And I'm sure they had 16-year-olds working in there. Oh, yeah. These, these would have, yeah, so these would have had, just been young, pretty girls. He had no idea. He had no idea who he was going to get, except a young, pretty girl, basically. And I think um, it. I found it odd, and I don't know if he contradicted what you're saying anywhere, but... I, I would find it really strange that a 33-year-old man considered uh, Samantha Koenig anything but a child because she was a child. Yeah. You know, th- th- I had gone and done some like web archive searches, and one of the things uh, that comes up a little later on is this whole 12 tribes of Israel thing. But the reason I'm, oh, oh, the reason I'm mentioning it here is because Samantha Koenig has just happened. He's dismembered her. He's dropped her in the lake. He's done this whole ransom thing. He's gotten her debit card, and he's about to to take off. If you've ever looked up, I think they're called Vine Church now. They're a cult, essentially. So that interested me right off the bat because it was a, uh, a cult-like thing where I, I felt like his mom would be like possibly ha- having connections to it along the way. The 
the little tiny touch of this for this episode is there was this, I, and I, I don't want to say cult, but th- there's a, a religious community now known as the, or that was known as the Vine Christian Community Church and a, a number of other names that is also called the 12 Tribes. And if you Google search the 12 Tribes, uh, you run into a number of things related to printing and these small businesses that are like construction based. Um, and, and again, you have to do the web archive search because if you do it now, they're major companies like Yellow Deli restaurants. But one of the things they had going on back in 2012, they ran a chain of restaurants called Common Ground Cafe Restaurants. And it wasn't that I think this has anything to do with Israel Key. I don't think this has anything to do with Israel Keys necessarily. I just thought it was an interesting cult reference. But when you go Googling Common Ground Coffee, if you make the mistake coffee instead of cafe, and you see basically the, the Anchorage location, then what you come to is a website that is called Common Grounds Espresso. And if you go to commongroundsespresso.com through just searching for common grounds related to the 12 tribes, what you see, even in 2012, is 20 or 30 smiling, beautiful, 17 to 22-year-old girls. Every single photo they have is a beautiful girl smiling Um, In the more recent photos, it's them standing outside in like shorts and little t-shirts holding up letters that say common grounds. And that is what common grounds espresso is. They have a location, they have different locations, but all of the locations come to like a common page. And on this common page, common grounds espresso, it's just beautiful girls. And I was curious, like, did it look like that back then? It's been revamped. It's much more modern. The pictures are much more professional. But even back in 2012, that's what he would have seen if he looked up the words Common Grounds Coffee, Anchorage. It would have come up as CommonGroundsEspresso.com, and it would have been smiling girls holding coffee drinks, basically. So that interested me because that is what, you know, he could have come across as internet searches. But right now, Common Grounds Espresso Coffee, if you Googled it in 2011 or 2012, prior to March, is the best I can do in the web archives, you would have seen sexy smiling girls selling coffee. I've always wondered if maybe there, there the other side of that, the Common Grounds Cafe, is something that started up near where his family lived. And we'll come, this comes full circle later, but the 12 tribe stuff cult thing that like probably needs its own episode uh, just to discuss them. Um, But it ties back into the Mennonites at the time. It ties back into the words, Deborah Feldman. There's a lot of like things I think I could prove with having his actual browser cache rather than just photo files that I, I think he probably wasn't even looking for Common Grounds Espresso, per se. I but, was always under the impression that he had just gotten coffee at those places or, like, during the summer, whatever they sell. And I just, I always was under the impression that 
visiting the facilities because there were several like just right there in Anchorage. Um, right. Like he had made a plan based on sort of uh, the isolation of the booths, so to speak. And yeah. um, so I felt like he had just seen pretty girls work there and that there was an opportunity. That's what I always thought. And I don't know about all the other stuff, but um, he, I think you're probably right. I'm that pretty is probably sure he the- even says like, I had, you know, decided that that was what it was going to do. And he'd actually scoped out the situation at least once, maybe more than once. Um, because remember that he was scratching an itch here. Right, And so uh, the impression I always got was that he had thought it through. Now, the other stuff, um, as far as it having any significance, I have no idea. But I'm pretty sure he talks about just pretty girls in isolated places getting away with it. Well, I, I agree with you there. And I'm not sure. It's just a, it's like a thread I'm pulling on at the moment. I've been pulling on it for years. And I, I, I'm talking about it a little bit here because this is kind of the last time that Samantha Koenig comes up. And that is an impulsive, like, I, I think it's impulsive. I don't think he stalked her. I think whoever the girl in the booth was that night was going to be. He did not better. stop. When I say he was scoping it out, he was scoping the situation out. Yeah, no, I, I'm it with you. It would have been whoever happened to be there. Right, right. It doesn't, like, it could have been any one of these 15 people that pop up when I do this web archive search, it could have been any of them. If they were the girl working the booth that night, it would have been them. And that's the, that's sort of that randomness is what I want to talk about because when keys gets her debit card and when he makes his trip back to like, he starts in Vegas, essentially he's coming down for a wedding. What's interesting about what he does. That's so risky with Samantha Koenig is related to her ATM card. And he tries to use it up in Anchorage. He has to, he has to fly down to Vegas because that's, he says that's the only plane ticket he could get. And essentially goes Anchorage, Seattle, Vegas. When he, when he does this, he said his, one of the, the interesting things that he says to the police is that he was taking his daughter to see the grand Canyon along the way. But we know now that what he was really doing was taking a long drive and stopping to get a money from the ATM. Now, do you know how many total ATM trips he had Uh, while he was traveling? Uh, Well, just period. I have listed as two happening in um, Alaska, but Right, four. but they're almost like testing it. Um, one of them's like testing it, the balance maybe. And there's four. There's four. Okay, so then he comes in to. I, I'm just trying to put this in order, really quick, so that people have a like kind of an understanding of where I'm coming from, why I'm saying all this insanity that I'm about to say. In the FBI's timeline, they pick up with keys. So it, he basically drops off in in Wyoming. In September of 2011, as far as the official timeline they released to the public, it picks up again on 2-1-2012, which is the date that Samantha Koenig was kidnapped and murdered. They go through the first trip to Texas. Now, he posted a ransom note on February the 24th, 2012, and on February 29th, 2012, he attempts to withdraw or checks the balance of, of the account. He then, on... March the 1st is able to withdraw 
in Anchorage. March the 6th, he flies from Anchorage to Las Vegas. March the 7th, he uses the ATM in Wilcox, Arizona. March the 8th, he uses the ATM in Lordsburg, New Mexico. Now, he has two more transactions on here. One is listed on the FBI timeline as, as 3-8-2012 in Shepherd, Texas. That There's an ATM withdrawal. And then the other is on 3-10-2012 in Humble, Texas. There's an ATM withdrawal. Does that sound about right to you from just from saying it's th- – I'm reading the timeline there, but does that sound about like how you understood it to go down? No. Okay. How did you understand it to go down? Okay. Um, and this is based – I'm actually um, regrouping here. So uh, based off what you sent me just before we started. Um, let's see. I have that – First of all, I want to be clear that they have marked it as AST, which is actually Atlantic Standard Time. And I don't think that's what they meant. I think they meant Alaska Standard Time. And this is uh, ending up being a problem. Right. Um, because it is actually a huge difference between Atlantic Standard Time and Alaska Standard Time. And it's actually relevant. What was so important about this? Is I have multiple versions of this. So I have I have a devil in the darkness version of this information. And then I went and looked at the vault, which has a version of what we're talking about here. Now, what we're looking at that we're considering to be uh, the source for this, even though it's an American predator, devil in the darkness, and it's you know on two other podcasts and it's on the FBI vault files, the file that I'm using here is from a warrant application by the FBI related to the actual charges of access device fraud. Um, so this is going to be the words of Jolene Golden that, I, that I'm narrowing down to. And it's not that I think anybody did anything nefarious here. I don't, this is not somebody like trying to be corrupt or something. That's not what's happening. There's just some mistakes that are made along the way where it becomes very difficult to tell when Israel keys was actually using the debit card. And it, that's important here because we're talking about uh, right before he gets arrested. This is literally the week before he gets arrested in Texas. All of this leads, these multiple uh, ATM withdrawals, they, they lead to the FBI being able to gather enough information to basically take close photos of the car that is approaching these ATMs, even though Keys is completely disguised in these photos. They're able to essentially boil down what make and model of car it is. And when they do that, that is ultimately what leads Israel Keys to being arrested. So that's why it's such an important thing. Where it gets weird is he's had multiple trips to multiple ATMs at this point. Just by what we just talked about, there are six ATM visits related to this. Two up in Anchorage, one in Wilcox, and one in Lordsburg. Now, those are not as interesting to me as the Texas ones. Now, the Texas ones become interesting for a number of reasons. Even though they take place on different days... The Texas ATM visits take place very close to a national forest. More importantly, they take place about 38 miles from each other, door to door. 
So if you were to drive from one ATM location to the other ATM location, it's just under 40 miles. This is all close to the activities that Keyes has been participating in with his family. But more importantly, right in the middle of this, something happens that I really want to draw attention to. So when I was reading the American Predator version of these ATM visits, here's what her account of all of this is. And so to be fair to Maureen Callahan, she is basically pulling from what were be on the lookouts or attempt to locate flyers. She's telling the story through the eyes of a Texas Ranger named Rayburn. And Rayburn is ultimately responsible for Keyes being in custody. So that's important to remember. In this flyer, it says referencing kidnapping suspect from Anchorage, Alaska. Suspect used an ATM card twice, once in Humble, Texas, and again in Shepherd, Texas. Please send flyer and recent ATM info to all in-car computers. Ranger Steve Rayburn and Lufkin will be the main ranger assisting the FBI in this matter. These are the flyers that she's pulling from. And what she ends up doing is telling the story of how they go about getting footage of keys, which ultimately... Uh, it doesn't help them that much. And she, she tells a pretty dramatic story about when they call the bank manager and I, I believe it was in the humble bank manager. They essentially tell them, no, they're not coming in to, uh, to get the footage. A, a lot of little things happen along the way where, Do you know why they wouldn't come in. You, why? Because it's not safe. Yeah. They have absolutely no idea who they're talking to on the phone. Yeah, they're going into the bank in the middle of the night. It's crazy. Not a good idea, right? Because the other bank managers from Arizona and I think ultimately all of the other three bank managers, they came in in the middle of the night because essentially you've got Payne, one of the FBI agents from Anchorage, saying there's a young girl's life that we think is in danger. Uh, The video from Humble turned out to be useless. Now, what's interesting about this to me is – these sources being different, it's important. Um, it's important because I, I realize, like over time, that some of the things related to Israel Keys could be taking place in a way that even a single twelve-hour period can make a difference. Right. So, um, so I, I had to boil down and determine which bank he went to first, and which bank he went to second, and when he went to. Them. Okay. And what do you have for that? Okay. So what I have, and this is me going off of Godin's words. Like, it, it, you know, I stuck to using her words from the search warrant because most of this were happening in sort of a real time. And I could be totally wrong about this, but Te- Texas is three hours ahead of Juneau, Alaska. Okay, so if it's, you know, wherever you are right now, if it's 10 a.m., in Alaska, in Texas, it's going to be three hours ahead of that. So you're going to have to go 11, 12, one. Correct. And, and I didn't understand the difference between Atlantic standard and Alaska time, but here's what she says on three, seven, 2012 at 23, 24 AST. Okay. That's Atlantic standard time. 
Okay, so on 3-7-2012 at approximately 23-24 AST, which is Atlantic Standard Time. Right, except I don't think that's what they meant. Right. There's no reason for them to use Atlantic Standard Time. That's over, like, that's on the other side of the, the United States. Right. So, But it makes a huge difference. It does make a huge difference. And uh, just to kind of... Uh, point out Alaska Standard Time. The appropriate abbreviation is AKST. And our assumption had been that they should know the difference. There. Okay, so for example, um, if we say that it's eleven twenty-four, um, a let's say that they're meaning Alaska time. It's right. uh, two twenty-four Central Standard Time, and it's four twenty-four a.m. Atlantic Standard Time. So it's actually four hours ahead. Right. And this is AST versus AKDT. That's the, those are the two accepted. AKST or AKDT is Alaska. Mm-hmm. AST is Atlantic Standard Time. I think so it can meant, make a seven-hour difference. I think they meant Alaska Standard Time. Yeah. Because they're in Alaska. Right. So... So that's the, I just want to preface with that's the assumption being made that because they're in Alaska, the AST abbreviation for the timing, and based on the story that we have about what Keys did, right, it makes more sense that they're saying um, Alaska Standard Time and because of he was doing this stuff late, early, late to early, right? Like in the wee hours of the night. Right. Okay. So what have you got as far as um, his Uh, travels? I have so many files open right now. My computer is going, no. You don't think that they meant Atlantic standard time, do you? No, God, no. I just, I think that's how some of the authors interpreted it. Well, because they used the wrong abbreviation. Right. So they didn't. And they weren't thinking logically. Right. So that's how we get like all these different things. If, Cause if you're looking at like multiple different well, versions of this. Okay. From, I went strictly off of what you just sent me. Okay. Right. All right. And from that, you've got March the 7th in Lordsburg, New Mexico at 2324 AK. No, AST. Right. That's what they right. have. Okay. Well, that's not even central time. That's mountain time. Right. Okay, and so that's one twenty four a.m. If they're going off of Alaskan time, but it's one twenty four a.m. on March the eighth, not March right. the seventh. Right. Okay, so everything shifts forward. Right, and it it makes a big difference to map this out. Is really weird. So the the very first one is actually three seven two thousand twelve. At 2157 AST, which we're assuming is Alaska time, he goes to a Western bank located at 200 West Rex Allen Road in Wilcox, Arizona. He's seen there, and this is considered to be like the third count of debit card fraud or access device fraud. Surveillance video shows the individual using the debit card for the withdrawal is a white male dressed in a gray hooded jacket or sweatshirt with glasses, a gray face mask, gray gloves, dark colored pants, light colored shoes, appearing to be driving a late model white Ford Focus sedan. This is the, so this is number one. This is the lower 48's first ATM withdrawal. And that's actually, so that would end up being what? 1157 PM. It's going to be three hours off. 
So yeah, you're 957, so, 10, 11, 12. No, it'd be 1257. Wait, it's mountain though. Wait, wait, wait. That's what I'm saying. So 2157, this is like the middle of the morning. You see what I'm saying? Oh, wait, no. You said 2157. That's 957 at night. Okay. So if it's 957 here, it is 1257 or is it 11.57? It makes a difference. Okay, hold on. March 7, 2012. Um, 9.57 p.m. Alaska Standard Time. And that's the AST, right? 21.57 AST. That makes it 11.57 MST. Okay, so this is right at midnight. Yep, just a little before. Mm-hmm. But it, so, so that is on March 7th. It doesn't change that. Right, so... This is at the Wilcox, Arizona location. He's withdrawn the money. He's withdrawn $400. He then drives an hour, give or take, depending on how fast he's driving, but 74 miles to the east. And he attempts to withdraw at the Western Bank at 711 Main Street in Lordsburg, New Mexico. Same card. But it's declined as being over the daily withdrawal limit at 2324 AST, which we think is their Alaska time. So this is just an hour and a half later. At 2325 AST, at the same ATM, a balance inquiry is conducted on the account utilizing the debit card. The balance is shown as $3,598.91. At 2326, $80 is withdrawn utilizing the debit card. Surveillance video showed the individual using the debit card is wearing similar clothing to the first ATM withdrawal over in Arizona. That's it for now. That's what he that's what he does on this day. And so that so that puts us at about 1:26 a.m. on March the 8th. Right. So we know that he shows up uh, in, in, after driving, this is essentially a thousand miles that he's got to drive from this ATM withdrawal to where his mom is, is a thousand miles. He's got to drive a thousand miles with his kid in the car. The next thing that we have is on three, nine, 2012 at approximately 2323 AST, but now in central time. Right. And so that would be, um, two AM. 3-9-2012-23-23 AST. Okay, and so that makes it uh, 2-23 AM, March the 10th, 2012, Central Time. Right, so he withdraws $480. He's adjusted his withdrawal amounts to max out for the day, incorporating for the fact that like there's probably going to be a fee in there, and he's got to go by multiples of 20 so he can't get five hundred dollars if it's a if, if it's a thing that's going to be five hundred and three dollars once you pay the fee because it'll tell him that he's over his limit. So he takes four hundred and eighty dollars at these. The first one is at fifteen fifteen FM nineteen sixty bypass East in Humble City, Texas. This is the first one. Initial review of the surveillance video from the ATM appeared to show that the individual using the debit card wore similar clothing to that worn during the two aforementioned ATM withdrawals in Arizona and New Mexico. On 3-11-2012, at approximately 23-47 AST, there's another $480 withdrawal at the People's State, State Bank located at 5850 Highway 59 South in Shepherd, Texas. Okay, and so that's... 2.47 a.m. on March the 12th, 
in between this time, he's had family stuff going on. Here's here is what I'm getting at with all of this. Right around the time he's doing this, he he appears to be not taking major roads because he doesn't show up in the surveillance videos. And they've, you know, they've been looking for this white car in the surveillance videos as the week goes on. But ultimately, he is found to be in the Quality Inn parking lot a couple of days later. Here's what's crazy about Shepard to Humble, Texas, that 40 miles I talked about. And I know that you don't, I know that like you and I struggle with how do we talk about victims whose families really have no idea this particular family. I've, I've started speaking to them. I really just wanted to verify that the information that we had was, you know, somewhat accurate. This is in the same area roughly that, that Mark Reinberger went missing. Um, and it's not terribly far from where Israel Keys was there for, you know, for the wedding and everything, and from where his mom lives. But what bothers me is that this guy doesn't make it into Namus until April, almost May, of 2020. Lufkin, Texas is next to Wells. This is where Keys gets arrested. South of Lufkin, Texas is Shepherd, Texas. And then south of Shepherd, Texas, along the same road, is Humble City, Texas. To the east, between Humble City and Shepherd, there's a little town called Plum Grove, Texas. And in the time that Israel Keys would have been in Texas before he used the ATMs, a man went missing on a walk. And I'm going to tell his story here because his story is, is worthy of putting out there. And I honestly believe this is the last victim of Israel Keys. We just can't quite figure out how it would have gone down. There's a headline in the Houston Chronicle from March 21st, 2012. And it says, man with short-term memory loss still missing, foul place suspected. Thousands of dense acres crisscrossed by rain-flooded creeks north of Houston seem to have swallowed a man without a trace. An amateur race car driver's cell phone beamed his last location before going dead two weeks ago. It indicated that he had trudged at least six miles into a remote area where Liberty County intersects Harris and Montgomery counties. In his last cell phone conversation, Dennis Rogers, 54, of Plum Grove, said that he was lost and he was confused. He was unable to be more specific because four years earlier, he'd suffered a major heart attack that destroyed his short-term memory. While he could remember things from his childhood, he might not remember what happened 20 minutes earlier, his former wife, Tammy Rogers Lacaze, explained. Now, the mystery surrounding his disappearance has deepened because of conversations overheard at the NoTab bar in New Caney and postings made later on Facebook. These remarks hint that Rogers may be the victim of foul play. Rogers suffered a cardiac arrest in 2007 while sitting in his souped-up Chevy Camaro, preparing to race at the Evadale drag strip near Beaumont. When he kept revving his engine and failed to move forward, 
A mechanic rushed over to see what was wrong. He found Rogers was slumped in his seat, turning blue. Afterwards, he was forced into early retirement from his job as a Shell oil electrician. He had to relearn everything he had once enjoyed, even walking. He walks slower and with less confidence now, his ex-wife said. Yet, unless it's raining, he could still walk nearly every day around the loop that circled his home. Justice of the Peace James Metz, who has known Rogers for 10 years, described him as gregarious, stopping for friendly chats with his neighbors as he took his daily walk. On March 8th, the day he vanished, he had spoken with his eldest daughter, 29-year-old Crystal Usher, at lunchtime, just before he started his walk. His usual pattern was to check in with family members about every 30 minutes during the walk, but phone records show that he didn't contact anyone for the next four hours until Crystal called him at 5.48 p.m. to tell him that supper was on the table. He lived nearby, and she made sure that he ate properly since the heart attack. That's when, they t- that's when he told her that he was lost. He could see lots of pine trees, a trail, and a deer stand, but he had no idea where he was. Panicked, his daughter drove to the loop where she thought he might be and honked her horn and yelled, but Rogers couldn't hear anything. So she alerted her mom, who dialed his cell phone and persuaded him to call 911. This gave law enforcement a ping for his coordinates inside the 67,000-acre forest he appeared to be lost in. His family begged him to stay put, but he kept moving. Family members, during two dozen phone contacts after that, once heard him fall into some water, but they said that he stayed calm throughout. The phone eventually went dead at 9.31 p.m., but his younger daughter, Kimberly, who was 22, made one more attempt to contact him three and a half hours later at 1 a.m., and somehow her father's cell phone had enough battery power to connect one last time. He just told her that he was lost and confused again, and then there was nothing, Tammy said. Since Roger's disappearance, that area has been pounded by eight inches of rain and seen temperatures dip into the 40s some nights. More than 200 searchers using amphibious vehicles, horses, helicopters, dogs, and infrared cameras found no trace of him. The terrain can be treacherous. Several horses became bogged down in the mud. One fire truck sank down to its axles. A four-wheeler flipped over, and searchers lost boots and twisted ankles. Authorities called off the search last weekend, saying they had exhausted all resources and want to investigate the criminal lead. The most unusual twist to the story occurred March 17th, when someone told investigators about overhearing customers at the no-tab bar located in a metal building down a secluded dirt road in New Caney, alluding to the possibility that someone had already found Rogers and harmed him. Liberty County Sheriff's spokesman Rex Evans would not elaborate, except to say the unidentified tipster also provided copies of a similar discussion made on a Facebook page. Evans says law enforcement has identified three persons of interest to talk to about this information. Two refused to discuss anything or take a polygraph without a lawyer. The third was never found. Both Crystal and her mother say that Rogers has never strayed from the loop and wandered into the woods before this. Both also wonder what happened during that three-and-a-half-hour gap when Rogers had no contact with his family before he reported being lost. He had no credit card and only $20 in his pocket. It's weird. I can't see why anybody would harm him. So that's like the main article that sort of encompasses what happened to Dennis Rogers. There's a lot more to read about him. I have gone through 
multiple police blotters and uh, there's a missing page down there that lumps him into the missing Texas 40. And I've gone over the maps for the searches. I've looked at what Equisearch did. Dennis Rogers, in my mind, is Israel Key's last victim. And I have no idea how he did it. The way I, the speculative way that I think he did it is I think Keyes was taking the side roads to avoid essentially surveillance cameras on the highway when he gets there, drops his daughter off, and before he goes out to make this first ATM visit. And it's important, like the stuff that I was reading earlier that is related to the ATM withdrawals is important because... The Shepherd, Texas ATM withdrawal doesn't put him anywhere close to Plum Grove necessarily. I mean, it's it's relatively close, like, but it's not as close. That's the later ATM withdrawal. What is what you and I believe is early morning on the twelfth of March, but the Humble City ATM withdrawal would put him squarely in line with where Dennis Rogers went missing, when he went missing. Okay, so this is where I get confused. And actually, uh, that sort of clarified it for me. I have, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the Humble City ATM withdrawal as being on uh, at 2.23 a.m. on March the 10th, 2012, Central Time. Yes. Okay, and then I have Dennis Rogers going missing on March the 8th after lunch. Correct. Okay. He was last heard from, uh, like I think about 1 a.m. on the 9th. Right. Okay. And so this, so the humble city Texas ATM withdrawal is actually about 25 hours after the last time Dennis Rogers was heard from. Correct. Okay. So, um, I have, an uh, ongoing beef with uh, Texas in general. I've been down there. I went down uh, exploring a theory related to Brandon Lawson, um, and I and I spent more time than I wanted to spend in Texas in the summer of 2019. It is a place that, generally speaking, if you've been to Texas, you've seen most of what Texas has to offer as far as its remote areas. It doesn't get uh, much thicker than the area that I was looking in. Here's, here's the thing about Dennis's case for me right now is, one, when I go to get his open records request, and I've done this multiple times, I get exactly one call sheet page just indicating uh, that Tammy Rogers at the time, but who doesn't use that last name anymore, who is his ex-wife, uh, has reported him missing. And so this comes in on 3-8-2012, and it sort of spells out that he's missing and that there've been a couple of attempts to locate. And then it describes what he was wearing. So he was wearing a, he's a 54 year old man. He was wearing a gray shirt and blue jeans with a camo jacket or a blue windbreaker. And they considered him missing from the residence that at supper time, basically they thought he would be back, but they were, you know, he, he stayed in contact with people. And as you go back through his day, uh, 
you can ch- exactly like I read, like it read in that article, they do have contact even after he's reported missing. They just never find him. Okay. And so I want to point out something here because I don't necessarily agree um, that Dennis Rogers is a victim of anything except maybe being uh, succumbing to the elements. However, so I followed what you were saying as far as the ATM situation goes, and I felt like that more than likely ruled keys out as opposed to ruling him in. However, now that I've laid it all out, I realized something. And I think this could absolutely be relevant to your point. Okay. Where, so you've got Dennis Rogers having lunch and speaking with one of his daughters. And then um, he is on his walk. They hear from, uh, and then uh, she talks to him again at dinner time. And so they're saying there's a three hour window of time here where he went on his walk and managed to get lost, right? And so this man has short-term memory problems. So from, let's see, I think it's like five, she said, okay, she said she called him at 5.48 p.m. So they're essentially saying that from 2.48 p.m. until 5.48 p.m., he was doing something that they can't figure out what it was, and it ended up to him ultimately being missing. Okay. Right. So under the circumstances that we know for certain, assuming that the Alaska, the AST used in documenting Keyes' um, ATM withdrawals time-wise, uh, assuming that they met Alaskan Standard Time, he is in Lordsburg, New Mexico um, at 1.26 a.m. on March the 8th, 2012. It would take him roughly 13 hours to arrive in Plum Grove. Now, we don't have any information that he went to Plum Grove, right? But I'm saying to uh, lend credence to your theory, that three-hour window of time is exactly the window of time Israel Keys could have arrived in that area had he gone, Right, and that is uh, that is something that's interesting because uh, if he's driving all night, leaving at one twenty six a.m., he's going to end up. It switches to Central Time once he gets to Texas, and so he's he's coming into where did he go first to Humble? He he does the ATM withdrawal at Humble, um, but we think that he went to. To drop the kid at Wells or Lufkin, okay. which are they're side by side. And so the timing, it really does. Um, so not so much for me anyway. Uh, the ATM situation, except that does mean he was driving around, right? I have yeah. a feeling he was um, scoping out the situation as far as what had happened to him. Uh, like he thought he had been seen. Uh, he was going to be in this area for a little bit longer than he had been. Like he wasn't in Wilcox or Lordsburg for any amount of time. He just drove through. And so I think he was sort of trying to plan things out. So I think the vicinity that Dennis Rogers went missing, because see, this is what I think. um, And I don't know exactly how this would have worked just like you, but I think it would have been, he was picked up on his walk. Yeah, like way and that's, before he got 
lost at all. And I don't know how he ended up on the phone later on. And so I can't explain that. And that makes me lean away from it. But it, it's very interesting to me that he was in a vicinity that Keys could have gotten to. Because essentially, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. So he would have gone uh, from Lordsburg, New Mexico, driven to drop his daughter off at Wells, see his family for a little bit. And then he probably would have continued on looking to make a plan for getting more money because he hadn't gotten a whole lot of money at this point. Oh, not, not only does he have to be doing that, he does it. Well, yeah. And so what I'm saying is like, it would make perfect sense that he was out driving around in the afternoon time and Plum Grove would have been on his way between uh, Wells or Lufkin and Humble or Shepherd, right? Right. So he would have gone right through there. And he, so I don't think there's any way that he ends up at this no tab bar thing, by the way, but I'm going to say what no, happened I don't there. think that that's. So, yeah, I don't think it's keys there, but there's this, it, it's not even really a bar. It's almost like some buddies had a garage on a remote piece of property that people came to. And they called it the no tab bar. It's not located in the same place where people would see it if they look it up now, because that's a different thing. But there's still a no tab bar. It's just not this no tab bar. There was an extensive search done around the area that he went lost and around this bar. But the rumor was, and this is posted at the time it was posted on a couple of different Facebook pages. You can't find that anymore because the pages are wiped clean. But essentially, investigators were able to read where a woman in March is talking about the fact that someone at the NOTAB bar indicated that they had seen Dennis Rogers getting into a vehicle. And depending on which version of the story you read, they got the impression that the person who put him in the vehicle had done something to him. And the investigators end up clearing two of three persons of interest related to this, but it was, it took them a long time to do it. It's not even in, it's not in 2012, it's years later. And I don't know how they cleared them. It's just that they, even though they're tight lipped about it, have said that like, that's not an issue anymore. The gist is they, they do confirm that bar patrons gave others the impression that Dennis Rogers had been found and had something done with him, but that it was more done in jest. So, and this is during the time that the search is going on that this happened, by the way, posted about later, but that is the time that, that made it interesting to investigators. In my mind, I picture this guy getting close to a roadway, middle of the night, walking along after that last cell phone call and the difference is I can't get keys from Wells to Humble City and here and make it make sense. But I could totally see him because one of the areas where the cell phone ping is, this is really hard to describe without showing people on a map, but there's a cell phone ping between Dennis Rogers' house and a road that takes place in the middle of a forest where if he just would have continued for any length of time, he would have come out on what would basically be a side road and by side road, I mean it would run parallel to the highway. If, if you're going from Wells and Lufkin, Texas, where Keys was picked up, 
straight down the humble city, you're going to take I-69. If you don't take I-69, there are roads that you can take, like uh, Texas 105, etc., that run right along I-69. One of those cuts through Splendora and Plum Grove, which is where Dennis Rogers and his family lived. And this is the part that was the most interesting to me. Dennis Rogers still comes up in every set of remains that are found in this area. There are three Liberty, Montgomery, and Harris counties that converge on this space. And where the no-tab bar is, where Dennis would have been walking, had he been from Plum, had he taken a turn one way or the other from the last cell phone ping, is an area known as Lake Houston Wilderness Park. And if Keys cut across to check out Lake Wilderness Park after his ATM visit and just cut his way back up to the highway, there is a strong possibility that he would have come into contact with uh, anyone coming up to a road from the wilderness there. And it probably would have been startling for everybody involved. But there's a series of side roads that, like, if you're just kind of logically wanting to avoid areas where there are surveillance cameras, you would cross Lake Houston Wilderness Park as you cut through here. And I believe that after all this area has been cleared now, that's the craziest part. Like when I, when I went to look at it all, it's cleared. They put, they're starting to put homes in this area. All those, um, they searched the, the series of acres and miles for, for Dennis and it's all clear. It's all literally now, a subdivision. So I think if he had been in there, I think they would have found him. That doesn't mean they didn't accidentally scoop him up or burn him or whatever when they were disposing of the debris there. And this has given me one of the biggest dilemmas. I've talked to Dennis's family. One of them is very open. And I considered like asking her, like, did, did you ask, uh, does anyone ever ask you about Israel keys? But I didn't do it. The reason was, it happened so long ago. I just want to um, sort of swing back around real quick. I have felt like his ATM visit to Humble at 2.23 a.m. on March the 10th, 2012. I feel like that would be too late for him to have come across Dennis. I don't think they necessarily coincide, but if he's out there looking... Okay, this is, this is what makes the difference for me. So this is going to sound like I am making a lot of assumptions here. I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there. He flies into Vegas after a long trip down to Vegas on 229 and 3-1. He uses the ATM and the card at the ATM. Then he flies. On 3-7 and 3-8, he uses the card at the ATM and on his way in. But then for some reason, he doesn't use that ATM card again for about 48 hours. What was he doing in that 48 hours? Thank you for joining us for our Cruel Summer episodes, where we go back to looking at 
Israel Keys. We are sponsored by LabradiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabradiCreations.com, and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, at TrueCrimeXS, or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252 365 Five five nine three. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time. When I interviewed this, the people in this family, I, I was really wanting to answer the question, had the FBI ever approached them? And the local police asked them many more questions in a way that made it seem like, like they were looking at this. And they aren't. And that's the reason I put it out there. You know, I, I spend so much time in the middle of the road, straddling the fence, trying to take a, a position that is neutral. And in this case... I find it really hard to do that. And I don't have any, you know, I don't have any good proof as to why or why not. I just, my gut says, because this is potentially the last victim, that there would be more evidence of this than anything else. Like from the rental car or from his belongings, from from Key's belongings they seize. There's more of a chance that they could find something about Dennis if he's the last victim than a lot of the other cases and that part that part makes me push it a little bit and i you know i'm 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 probably a little more obnoxious about this case than i am most of, of the cases i've looked at because it's towards the end and because there's the possibility of that evidence being there but the truth is when the fbi goes on dateline almost nine years after Israel Keys has died. Dennis Rogers is exactly the type of victim that they're looking for. Thing is, I'm not even sure that they realize that. All day you climb And right back down the other side
far can you see With no guarantee of anything 